Well, good morning. It is my privilege to be with you this morning. As it was already mentioned, my name is Jason Carmine, and I actually grew up in this church, so started attending here, I think, when I was eight years old, second grade. Uh, all through high school, Pastor Dan was my youth pastor uh, for a while before transitioning into his current role, which was, you've been in this role as lead pastor for how long? Yeah, see, that's how long it's been since I've been in middle school, too. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's great to be here this morning in a place that's home and familiar. So many faces that I recognize and so many of you who have poured into my life over those years. Um, my family and I have been in Cameroon for seven years. Uh, and before that, I served uh, for 15 years as the pastor of our Grace Brethren Church down in Lexington, Ohio. And so it is um, my joy and honor to be able to share with you this morning um, some things happening in Cameroon and kind of framing uh, the topic I was given this morning for all of us. Um, it's been good to spend some time with Pastor Dan this summer, uh, just talking about life and ministry in Cameroon, uh, playing some golf together and reconnecting. But he's given me the very easy task this morning of talking about the church and government on Independence Day. And so, uh, thanks. It's a good Sunday to take off. I appreciate it. Um, actually, more specifically than that, what does the church do or how does the church handle life and handle things when the government doesn't maybe support their work or maybe even could be hostile towards it? Let me start off by giving a couple of maybe explanations of what I mean when I'm using certain words before we get too far into this to maybe save us some confusion. For me and for our time this morning, when I use the word government, I'm talking about something bigger than politics. This is not a message about political parties, but a message about government and the church. Governments exist all over the world. Every country has a government. And every country has political parties that make up that government. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing. Doesn't transfer to every country in the world. But every country has a government. Many churches or many countries in our world have a church that exists there. And so when I speak of government, I'm not talking about political parties, but rather making reference to those who are in leadership and in authority in that place. This morning I want to share some of my own experience and more importantly the experiences of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Cameroon and hopefully connect some of their experience, some of the things that they have lived through over there with the truth of scriptures and also hopefully connect them to our local situation here in the United States as well. Let me talk a little bit about Cameroon. There it is on the map for you. About 22 million people, roughly the size of Texas, clearly not the shape of Texas. I live in the capital city of Yaoundé that is about two and a half million people. You can think Washington, D.C., uh, all of the government offices, but stuck right in the middle of the Central African re region and all that goes with Africa. 
Cameroon is officially about 38% Catholic. It's about 25% Protestant and 25% Islamic, and then the rest is a mix of other things. Cameroon has religious freedom, but that freedom is not doled out equally. And I want to talk some about how that influences life in Cameroon. Traditional African religion, which influences all of the religious groups to one extent or another, we hopefully that, hopefully that becomes less and less, is worship of your ancestor. And so what they do is a grandparent, a great-grandparent, or however old they can get, after the person dies, they take the skull of that person and set up an altar in their home. And they pray to that skull and give food sacrifices to that skull and consult their dead ancestor for guidance into the future that will create a life of ease and blessing and whatever else they desire. So very, very different um, experience in terms of the, the religious kind of atmosphere there and what people are doing both publicly and privately. Here in the United States, obviously, we have the First Amendment that gives all religions equal standing under the law. And that would include religions even opposed to the message of the gospel of Jesus that we so deeply believe in and trust. The president, Paul Bia, has been in power since 1982 in Cameroon. He changed the country's constitution to get rid of term limits for the president um, and is enjoying now in his late 80s, he was just elected to another seven-year term in office and he will die as the president of Cameroon and the longest serving president in Africa, I think, and maybe even in the world um, by the time uh, his life is over. He is Catholic by profession. But there are rumors that a few times he, each year he is involved in child sacrifice to appease the ancestors and the spirits so that he can gain guidance and better lead the people of Cameroon. So when it comes to religious freedom, where I live, the president recognized officially several Protestant denominations early on in his tenure as president. But he got to the point where he basically decided he didn't want to do that anymore and said to people, the religious groups, the denominations, you're all the same anyways, just work together and get along and fall under these groups that have already been, quote unquote, recognized or approved. Unfortunately, our Grace Brethren churches or our Karis churches in Cameroon have not been formally recognized as a legitimate Protestant group in Cameroon. And so what that essentially means is that we are often seen as a cult or there are questions about what we believe or do or practice because the government hasn't given their stamp of approval to our group. At any time, a government official could walk into a church group that has gathered tell them they are meeting illegally and send everyone home or find them. Now, best of my understanding is that hasn't happened, but it could. 
people have visited the churches and the leaders of those churches have talked their way around those situations, uh, maybe have given a little gift to the government official or the local leader who has come trying to disband them, and they're good for a little while longer with that financial gift that is given to them so they look and turn the other way. Either way, life for our people can be a little more difficult and harassment is a little more regular by those in leadership and authority over them, whether it's a local government in the neighborhood or a region. Our churches can't have a sign out front, Grace Brethren Church of this or that. So when you tell people where the church meets, they don't know. So you literally have to walk through these tight neighborhoods with someone and show them a building or whatever the case might be. Our churches don't look like church buildings. The thing is, though, and this is what I want us to hear this morning, the leaders of the churches in Cameroon think the golden ticket for church growth is having government recognition. If the president would just put his stamp of approval on the Grace Brethren churches in Cameroon, the floodgates will open, our churches will be full, we'll have more than enough money to do the things that we want to do. If just the government will give us approval. I was talking to some leaders once, and they, they said that thing to me. That's what they truly, deeply believe. And my response to them was, no, it won't. <laughs> nothing new, nothing is going to happen if you get government approval of your church, because that's not how God grows his church. They were shocked that I would say something so negative against them. They were, they were dumb, and so it started me on a bit of a journey. To us, that makes sense. But I didn't want to use my own opinion, my own thoughts to justify my point. I wanted to take them to the truth of scriptures. And so it started me on a journey as to be able to answer their question as to why I was correct in my understanding that just because you get a stamp of approval from the government doesn't mean your church is just going to be full of people the next Sunday. My experience, though, has been that many people think this way in the church around the world. Now, it's not about government approval. But the idea of if we just do this or that, then everything will fall into place for us. I know I can relate to what my Cameroonian brothers and sisters thought when I pastored a church in Lexington. Oh, the big church is doing this or that. Let's just kind of copy, imitate, and then people will want to come to our place too. It's just not how God works. Nothing happened generally. If we, there's, not a, there's not a golden ticket. So I would like to share with us two things this morning that I discovered in my study of Scripture and my response to, my, to our Cameroonian brothers and sisters in Christ there. Some universal truths that I think apply both in Cameroon and here and then in our closing time to draw our focus back to the main thing that God has called the people of the church to do and be a part of. 
So the first thing I kind of want to get our minds wrapped around this morning is God's promises for Israel are different than God's promises for the church. When, when God gave his promises to Abraham, to Israel, and what we read about in much of the Old Testament, God had a plan for reaching the world in the Old Testament through Israel. That plan changed with Jesus in the church in the New Testament. So when we look at the promises God gave Israel in the Old Testament, those promises are for Israel. When we look at the promises made to the church in the New Testament, those promises are for the church. And we, we can't interchange them because they're two distinct groups. In the Old Testament, God's plan was what we might say was pretty nationalistic. God's plan and promise was that Israel would be so holy, so obedient to the law of Moses, and that, that God would bless them. And his blessing would be so great that the nations of the world would look at the way he was blessing them and they would say, we want to follow that God. The problem was, in most of the Old Testament, Israel lived in disobedience to God, and they never received any of that blessing. So the Old Testament has many promises from God that are national in their intent, that if, God, if Israel followed God, he would bless them. They're only for Israel. They're not for the church in Cameroon. They're not for the church in France. They're not for the church in the United States or anywhere else in the world. They were made between God and Israel. In the New Testament, rather, God has sent the church out to make disciples. It's actually just the opposite. Obedience now means going out and fulfilling the Great Commission. God shifted his plan for reaching the world with the gospel to the church. And the way the church was going to do that was to go out. Very different. God, in the Old Testament, bring people in because of obedience. Now obedience means I'm going out. It wasn't that God made a mistake in the Old Testament with Israel. He didn't just kind of sit in heaven, scratch and say, oh, that didn't work, let's try something else. It wasn't that God regretted his initial choice. Israel spent most of their history in the Old Testament living in disobedience from the Lord. Still that way today. So let me use some examples about how that impacts some things in Cameroon and connect then maybe some things to life in our worldview and perspective here in the United States. One of the things in Cameroon that happens is that leaders or pastors of churches take some of the promises of the Old Testament given to priests and the way the priests in the Old Testament were treated and apply them to pastors. You know why? Because priests in the Old Testament had a pretty cushy life. They, they, they got the, some good meat from the sacrifices, they received good clothes, they were, they were overweight, they had money for things, 
And so they were treated with honor and respect in a way that they were given stuff, and life was a bit easier for them. Leaders in Africa really, really, really want a good life, and they're enticed by how the priests were treated in the Old Testament. So if we can manipulate things a little bit and say, uh, that, that, that's for us as pastors as well, then, then we can get the best. We all hear that and think, well, that, that's kind of silly. Because pastors in the New Testament and priests, you know, they're, they're two different things. They're two different functions. There's no sacrifice. It's just totally different. And you'd absolutely be right. We talk about those things in our school. But here in the States, my observation and experience in pastoring a church has been that we take some of the, those nationalistic promises given to Israel and apply them to us here in the United States. Let me give you the classic example, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their, land, their sin and heal their land. That's a verse God gave Israel as a promise. God's promise to Israel in the Old Testament was connected to the land that he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. It's not a promise to the church. It's not a promise to the church in Cameroon. It's not a, a promise to the church in the United States. It's not the golden ticket that if we just do these things here in the United States, God's going to flip the light switch and everything's going to be great again. Of course, there are tons of things in the verse that we can learn about God and our relationship with him, how he desires repentance, how he sees our sin, and how our relationship with God is broken when we sin. But the promise of healing our land doesn't transfer to us. He didn't make the promise to us. The promise was for Israel. So it's always good when we want to discover what God's promises and plans for the church are, look in the New Testament where the church exists. There are dozens or hundreds of incredible promises that God has given the church that are for us. Many, many things that we can learn in the Old Testament that are more indirect for us. But 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 isn't for us in the United States or anywhere else in the world. That's not God's promise to us. That's God's promise to Israel. And so understanding God's plan for Israel and promises for Israel and his plan and the way that he wants to use the church is super important for us in shaping the way that we think about the church and government. That's the first thing to start wrapping our mind around and considering. There's a second one, though. As we look at the Apostle Paul and the, the other apostles in the book of Acts, and the second thing is that government support is not needed to make disciples. 
The fact is the church can and often does grow faster in places where the government is least supportive of the gospel. But we also need to frame this from a biblical perspective. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It's a reminder that God is the one who raises up all of the government leaders in our world. Verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Man, I don't like that. Let's go back to if my people who are called by my—I don't, I don't like this because this is for the church. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Do any of you have black Sharpie markers you use in your Bible? You might want to just cross that verse out. We don't like it, rather than the highlight. This is, this, is, this is a call for the church. When I came to realize and accept the fact God had sovereignly placed Paul Bia as the president of Cameroon and all of his corruption and all of his stuff for more than 30 years, that makes a difference in the, for me and my posture in handling situations I disagree with. I can wonder why God doesn't place Christian leaders in every country, and yet many places in the world have not yet heard the gospel, and so it's not capable of having a Christian leader in authority. God raised up, Romans 13 tells me, the Muslim president of the country of Chad and placed him there. Romans 13 reminds me God raised up Kim Jong-un in North Korea to be the leader there. I don't know why. I wonder why God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to take Israel into captivity or any other bad or harsh leader the world has seen, and there are lots of them. The simple fact, though, is that government support is not needed to make disciples. So one of the conclusions I had to come up with, come to with my Cameroonian brothers and sisters was that it didn't matter who was in government. The church could still function. It still had to function. It was still given the Great Commission. Nowhere is it a biblical requirement for the government to be pro-Christian for the church to thrive. And in fact, actually often just the opposite is true. The places in our world where the leaders in the government are most opposed to the gospel is where the church is thriving the most. I'd like to do a quick walk through the book of Acts and remind ourselves what happened to the apostles. Because the church started with kind of a, a huge explosion of conversions and continued on through the book of Acts as Paul and others traveled to places where the gospel had never once been heard before. 
but they face some difficulties along the way. And I want us to see them from the book of Acts with our own eyes. I'm going to read through them quickly. They'll be on the screen. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody till the next day. Now watch this, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, the number of men came to about 5,000. But they went to jail for doing it. Government wasn't supportive of the preaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priests rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. About that time, Herod the king, government national king authority, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Let that sink in. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he was a great politician, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but an earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There are all kinds of stories about this in church history from the time of Paul until today that show us that in many, many places in the world, the gospel message is hated by those in power and Christ followers are persecuted or killed for their faith. But that doesn't mean disciples can't be made. Early on in our time in Cameroon, I was called by some local church leaders to tell us that a third-party person had claimed ownership of the land that the church building had been built on and gave them a couple-day warning that he was sending a bulldozer and was going to tear the building down. And the call was, can we do anything to help them? Obviously, we couldn't. The local authorities turned a blind eye because they were not an approved church in Cameroon. It was heartbreaking to see the loss of the building and the struggle of those who were already impoverished. But you know what? They met for church that day. There, there, there was a building there. And they met and they prayed and they worshiped the Lord. No support from local authorities. They recovered from that loss. They gathered up all the scrap wood that had been used to make their initial building, and they bought a new place across the road. They added on to it. The church has now called a pastor to lead them because government support isn't needed to make disciples. All of the things I've talked about this morning, I want to now draw us back to the kind of the focal point of where I want to leave us in our thinking. And that is the third thing. Our greatest calling as a church is to make disciples. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 gives us the clear calling of the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. It's not the government's job to create a Christian nation. It's the church's. It's not the government's job to create a Christian Ashland or Christian Ohio. It's the church's as we go and make disciples. Making disciples requires interacting with people who do not think like us, who do not have the same worldview as us, or the same basic foundational principles about Jesus as us. They don't have the same starting place. But the Great Commission calls us to develop meaningful and deep relationships with people in order to share the person and work of Jesus with them. That's what the Great Commission calls us to do. Let me remind us of what Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says. I don't want to make any assumptions. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and get this promise, hang your hat on this church, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Take that promise with you, church. Jesus is with you always, even if you're persecuted, even if the government says, oh, we're going to give a little wink of the eye to the, the Christian. No, Jesus is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The main thing is the, and as Christians of the church, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. I find it very telling in all of my journeys into the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, basically governmental stuff was a non-issue for the church. They, it didn't, the, the government was there, and they were ruling over them, and they seemed to make very little or no attempt to change the way the government systems worked because they had more important things to worry about. God had given them the Great Commission. Everything else was a distant second. Yeah, support those that, that have our worldview, and all. I'm not saying that, but it's not the main thing. Their focus was to make disciples, to strive and fulfill, taking the gospel where it hadn't been heard before. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit more. Many of you here are parents or grandparents, um, and if you aren't parents, you may have experienced this as a child with your parents. Say I leave the house for a little while, and I tell my kids when we come back, you're supposed to have your room clean, you, I want you to fold and put away the laundry, and I want you to wash the dishes. And I leave for a few hours, and when I get back, I see the rooms are still not clean, the laundry is not folded, and they've not done the dishes. They have, however, made cookies, rearranged the furniture in the living room, and given the dog a bath. How do you feel about that as a parent? What do you do if you are a parent? If you're like me, you would say things, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? My kids are going to probably be in trouble because they didn't do what was asked of them. They didn't do the main thing. Nowhere does God give the church in any country, in any place, the call to change the government to make it Christian so those Christian values can be passed down. When we do that, we're making cookies, rearranging the furniture in the living room, and giving the dog a bath. We're not fulfilling the Great Commission, make disciples. We stand before God, and why? well, I, I did, I tried. Changing your culture comes through the church, not the government. It's the slow way, but it's the way that matters for eternity. God doesn't command us to create our own Christian subcultures so that we all feel comfortable supporting one another. Don't focus inward. God says, go make disciples. We do other things. It's like we're making cookies, rearranging the furniture in the living room and giving the dog a bath. They're not bad things necessarily. Just not what God told us to do. 
not where he told us to put our energy and our focus and our money and our efforts. He's given us the Great Commission. So God gives us these promises as the church. I tell my brothers and sisters in Cameroon that God has called them to make disciples. I tell them that when they put all of their effort and energy into working to get government recognition or make excuses as to why they can't make disciples because the government doesn't support them, that they're losing sight of what God has called them to do. They've missed the target when they spend months or years trying to make a connection with the right person in the right office who can write a letter on their behalf and put a stamp on it, when they speak, seek to have special offerings to come up with extra money to accompany that request, all of those things shift the focus from the main thing. And dare I say that Satan has used that to distract the church from its main mission. And the main thing is to go make disciples. The church in Cameroon has been weakened by their past pursuits of trying to get government recognition because it took their focus off the mission God had given them. My prayer for the church in the United States in this season is that it doesn't take its eyes off the mission that God has given you to make disciples. That you will have a renewed focus, a renewed energy, and a renewed passion for making disciples. Why? Because it's what God's asked us to do. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this incredible privilege to share with a group of people that many of whom are near and dear to my heart who have influenced me in, in numerous ways, countless ways, meaningful and deep ways. Thank you that Dan entrusted his pulpit to me this Sunday morning to share these things. That's no small thing. And so I thank you for that privilege. But Lord, I pray for us corporately as churches in the United States that you draw our focus back to the Great Commission, to dis making disciples, to doing what you call us to do, that we, we can quote the verse and we can, but are we about doing it, Lord, or have we become distracted? Help us get our priorities back in line. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and how it points us always, always, always in the right direction. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Will you thank him? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Jason. I just want to share, and, um, you know, I, I really wanted you to hear what he had to say. Um, because so... Um, you've called me, the church has called me, elders called me to, to lead this church uh, out of COVID and the craziness of all this as we come back together and clarify the focus and mission that God has called the church to. And, um, 
And then at some point, you know, somebody was just asking about this, this five-year call, you're retiring. No, I'm not retiring. It is to, to lead the church back out of COVID together, refocus the mission, and then hand this off to the next generation. Listen, listen, guys. The, the, the elders have talked about this, and it's very deeply on my heart. Um, I don't, you know, God in the last year and a half and stuff is, is shaking the whole country, shaking the church across America, shaking our church. And it's like, oh, my goodness, who's here, who's not here, whatever. whatever. Here's, here's the deal. Here's where Grace Church is going forward with a renewed focus like, like never before. We're about making disciples here in Ashland and the world and the nations. This is what, and God has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is what we have to be a part of. And he is with us always, even to the end of the age. The world is dying for the good news of the gospel. It is floundering, it is lost, and we have to be rivetedly focused on being the people of God and following the mission that he has given us to make disciples of the nations, make disciples of the children who are, who are here to come into this place, Vacation Bible School, the students, make disciples of, of, of adults, make disciples of, it's, it's just got to be what we are rivetedly focused on. That's what I'm giving my life away to, and we'll continue to do that in whatever role that means. I'm just going to be about making disciples. Anybody want to join me? Anybody here at Grace want to join us in that thing? And... Um, I, I, I really believe and sense that this is a growing focus uh, of our church, and I'm very, very excited about it. What I want you to do is um, we're kind of closing the service, but we're not ending church, right? Because we, we go out of here with these things. Uh, we do this in first service and invite you to do it. Stick around and pray. Grab somebody next to you and say, man, can we pray about this? Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you? Have you accepted Christ? And pray about these things that our lives will be about making disciples of our own children, of our grandchildren, of our friends, people that we know and love. So um, this is what God's called us to. So, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close in prayer. If you want to pray with somebody down front, uh, John Hall, Pastor Hall's here. There's others who pray with you. But just gather in groups. If you need to leave, right, there's no official ending to this. There, I, I just, what, what I don't want is to say, great to have you with us. See you later. Go light some sparklers. I mean, these are important things for us to be praying about. And uh, so, so just pray with some people around you before you leave. And uh, really glad you're here today. God, uh, and we are alive for such a time as this. It's no accident that you've placed us here in Ashland. It's no accident that we have the, the, the government that we do. Um, and um, may it call us to a greater focus on what we're really called to be about here, which we're ambassadors, you said. We're, we're aliens. We're not citizens of this country. We're aliens here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And you have called us as ambassadors to this world, pleading with people to be reconciled with the God of the universe. That's what we're here about. Please, you've got to be reconciled to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the President of presidents. And, um, and nothing, the gates of hell, no government, nothing can keep that from happening. May we be passionately focused on these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.